Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the Welcome phone. Welcome in, everybody. Episode we Funny. It is Monday, January 11th, 2021, people. Hope you had a fun, fulfilling, relaxing, enjoyable weekend. I'm guessing most of you watched the NFL. Hope you enjoyed that Nickelodeon broadcast. I'm actually recording here at halftime of the Saints-Bears game, so a little bit of Nickelodeon on my mind as we speak, but great show today. Uh, and, and really about as straightforward of a show as we are going to have at any point all all really calendar year, frankly. It's only January, but this is about as, as straightforward as it gets. We will open. College football national championship game is tonight, is Monday. We will break it all down. I will tell you, I, I think there's like two or three X factors that not a lot of people are talking about. I'll tell you why I think it'll happen, who's going to win, how it's going to happen. And we'll put a bow on a little bit of college football here because incredibly, we have one game left in the entire season. After that, we will take a short commercial break. And by commercial, just a little transition. You know how it goes. And from there, we will discuss another wild weekend of College Hoops. College Hoops finally picking up steam. And we will talk what what I think are the two biggest stories coming out of the weekend, ironically, between two teams that will play each other. Kentucky all of a sudden has not only figured it out, but looks incredible. So an insane game from Kentucky. And Alabama, I think, is trending as maybe one of the surprise teams over the last two, three weeks. Those two teams play each other, but we'll talk about them separately. Wrap on the weekend that was a couple other nice performances by a couple other teams, and we will get out of here. Also, one quick scheduling note. I know that I have said previously that we are going to switch up the schedule and go to a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday broadcast, but I think because this week is a little bit weird, we'll go back to Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, because there's no reason to wait an extra day to, to, to talk about the college football national championship game. So Tuesday morning after the Alabama-Ohio State game, you will have a fresh episode in your feed, and then Wednesday, what I'm hoping to do is a little bit of an all-encompassing college basketball podcast. I'm hoping to get a really big guest. Long story short, I will be actually traveling Wednesday, uh, so that that show will be pre-taped, trying to get a good college basketball guest for you. I think I have somebody lined up. Hope I have somebody lined up. And if I do, uh, you will really enjoy that show. Also, because of the fact that I will be traveling Wednesday to Monday, 
back to the mothership of Connecticut where I'm from. There will be no Monday episode next week. That's a lot to take in, but what you need to know is essentially Tuesday show recapping the national championship game, Thursday something college football related, and then nothing next Monday, and then I'll be back to a normal schedule after Martin Luther King Day. So let's get started. Before we do, I want to remind everybody, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is where you should subscribe. Uh, iTunes, I said, uh, uh, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, on and on and on and on and on. Rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Our buddy Chardon is back, gave us a quick five stars. He said, uh, you know, I've been away for a while, but I'm happy to be back. Thank you for the show. So make sure that you're following Chardon's lead. Go to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and review. And finally, I've said it a million times, but make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. The YouTube page is blowing up. Thank you to all of you who have subscribed on YouTube. We're up to close to 2,000 followers over there at this point, or subscribers, I guess, is the term that they use. Um, And yeah. So make sure you're following me pretty much everywhere. Shows will go on. The Torres show will go on. And we are really excited for the new year and a lot of really fun things, a lot of fun interviews that are coming together for this show in 2021. But with that said, people, no more time to waste. It is Monday. It is the day of the national championship game between Ohio State and Alabama. It is surreal to think about where we have come from, where we were back in July, August, and September, arguing for a season, fighting for a season, debating if a season could safely be played. And here is Alabama that has played 12 games this season, going for a perfect 13-0 season. And Ohio State, obviously, we know the narrative. They have not played as much, but they will be a deserving champion on Monday night into Tuesday morning if they do, in fact, beat Clemson and Alabama back-to-back. And so as I break down this game, like I think the biggest and broadest and most interesting thing about this game is that I know when you come to this show, or any show, frankly, you want answers, right? You want to know who's going to win, who's going to lose, how's it going to happen, what are going to be the keys? And that's obviously what I'm about to do in the coming minutes, but I also think it's worth noting that this might be... I would argue the single toughest thing that I have ever had to handicap on this show because we still don't really know who is playing on Monday night. Obviously, I talked about it a little bit uh, late last week, the idea that there was a report and there was a moment in time where we thought Ohio, we knew Ohio State was still dealing with some kind of COVID issue. We weren't sure what was going to happen for them or their program. That narrative eventually died down. Ohio State, Alabama takes all their tests on Friday. They fly out. It all seems good, but it is clear that to some degree, it appears as though there is still some sort of issue with COVID in the Ohio State locker room, right? And so obviously, if they're missing players in the biggest game of the season against the best team they'll play all year, then yeah, that does change how we handicap this this game, right? The second thing, Justin Fields, is he healthy? The last time we saw him, he had the game of his career, but he also took what might have been the hit of his career from James Stowski from Clemson. We all know he went in the tent, got the little magic Ohio State elixir, came back and was dominant, but obviously if he is not at 100%, that completely changes the narrative of this game. And finally, three, 
Ohio St- or Alabama, excuse me, might just be adding a little boring old All-American for this game uh, in James J- uh, Jalen Waddle, excuse me, who is supposed to be coming back from, or he he could in theory be coming back from injury this game. Jalen Waddle was actually Alabama's go-to receiver, quote unquote, before he got hurt. Obviously, it allowed Devontae Smith to emerge, but there are some people that believe that Jalen Waddle might actually be the best NFL draft prospect in the wide receiver court even better than Devontae Smith, who obviously went on to win the Heisman Trophy. So there are a lot of variables that nobody really knows coming in. Uh, But kind of one by one, what I would just say really quick is, as best as I understand it, Ohio State is mostly healthy and ready to play. Now, my understanding as I record here, like I said, about 6 Eastern on Sunday night, is that they should be mostly good to go. They could miss one or two guys. But we know how it has gone all season, and this is always subject to change. And so I don't want you to listen to what I'm about to say in the next 15 minutes and say, Torres told me they're going to be safe. And then 10 minutes before kickoff, we have 20 guys or 10 guys or 8 guys or whoever missing. But as best I know, Ohio State will be pretty close to full strength. Justin Fields has said he is at full strength, and who knows what's going to happen with Jalen Waddle? Hard to imagine that he would be at 100% if he even played. And so when I look at those factors and I look at a lot of different things, let's get into the game itself because I want to start with what is again becoming a narrative that I don't really understand, which is that Ohio State doesn't have a chance, right? And we talked about this both before the national semifinal against Clemson. And we talked about it after the, the, the Clemson game, trying to figure out why did we do this as a society? Why did we say that Ohio State had no chance against Clemson? Why did we treat them like they're sisters of the poor or some uh, you know, uh, a lowly uh, group of five team that had no chance against Clemson? This is still Ohio State. This is still one of the elite programs in the country. They recruit as well as anybody. They have a quarterback as good as anybody not named Trevor Lawrence. So like, why, why, why did we do that against Clemson? And as I look forward to this Alabama game, it, doesn't it kind of feel the same, right? Like going into that Clemson game, it was just like everybody was just conceding the game to Clemson, and it was a default Clemson-Alabama national championship game. And as I look at this one, I kind of feel the same. Alabama opened as about a seven, seven and a half point favorite. It has been bet up to eight and a half at this point, which means that Alabama is favored to win, not only win, but win by more than a touchdown. And Ohio State is again being treated like sisters of the poor. Well, you know, they had a good season, but Alabama, SEC, national, uh, you know, Nick Saban going for another national championship. It's the revenge tour. And it feels like nobody is giving Ohio State a chance. And so over the next few minutes, what I'm going to do is explain to you why not only do I think Ohio State will keep it close, but I think they can win. And so when I look at this game, I think there are two key factors that will determine if Ohio State can beat Alabama. Um, and there are two factors that are actually pretty straightforward that really need no explanation, but I'm going to explain them anyway, because that's why I do a podcast is to explain stuff, right? Um, but the two factors in my opinion are, can Ohio state handle themselves on the offensive line and on the defensive line? And if they do, I think they can win this game. Now you might be thinking, well, Torres, they must be pretty good on the offensive defensive line because, uh, yeah, they're Ohio State, they recruit elite athletes. That is fair, but they have had questions on both, which is why I'm bringing them up. First of all, offensively, look, they need to be great on the offensive line for two very simple reasons. The first one is you got to give Justin Fields time. 
And Justin Fields, I think part of the reason that there was doubt about Justin Fields coming in to the semifinal against Clemson is that he didn't look as dominant or as great as he was a season ago when he obviously led uh, Ohio State to the playoff when they lost to Clemson last season. If you go back to that season, I mean, Justin Fields just put up not only a great season, but really a historical one a year ago. Uh, finishing with 41 touchdown passes and three interceptions. Well, this year he's come back down to earth, 21 touchdowns, six interceptions, and it has been clear that if you can get pressure on Justin Fields, you can get him to make mistakes with the football. Now, that's not a criticism of Justin Fields. I think he's the second best NFL quarterback in this college class right behind Trevor Lawrence. I think he should be the number two pick. If I was the New York Jets, I would take him. But the fact remains is that if you can get pressure on Justin Fields, he does make mistakes with the football. He had six interceptions this year. He only again threw three last year. And if you look not only at the fact that he had six interceptions, but that he threw who he threw them against, it's pretty clear that against elite defenses, he hasn't been great. Six interceptions, one interception against Clemson, two against Northwestern, three against Indiana. Obviously, I take back what I said a second ago. He was great against Clemson, but he has struggled to a degree against the better defenses that he has faced all year. And so the reason that Ohio State dominating the offensive line is so important is because, again, when he has time, he can do what he did against Clemson, which is, of course, a historic game in which he threw for six touchdowns, almost 400 yards, and completely picked apart Clemson. The other thing, of course, is that, oh, by the way, when your offensive line is controlling the line of scrimmage, you can also run the ball, which is another reason why Justin Fields was so effective against Clemson, because not only was he able to, he had plenty of time in the pocket, but there was the threat of the run with Trey Sermon, who rushed for 193 yards. So to me, the Ohio State offensive line is absolutely, positively one of the keys to this game, and I think a total X factor. I think the good thing for Ohio State, this is a unit that I don't think anyone really questions will not be ready to play in terms of COVID issues. This is a unit that has been in and out all year. If you watch Ohio State on a week-to-week basis, they actually were missing essentially their entire offensive line against Michigan State late in the year. And then when they played Northwestern in the in the Big Ten championship game, Northwestern actually was, uh, you know, they had they were missing a few guys in that game as well. So you would think they would be close to 100%, but I do think that is a huge, huge, huge factor in this game. Is the O-line healthy? Are they there? And can they protect Justin Fields, create space? Because if you can get pressure on him, he has made mistakes, and we will see if Alabama can do that. On the other side, I would argue an even bigger factor is how does Ohio State's defensive line play? And to explain why that's so important, you have to go actually behind the defensive line to the secondary. And what I don't think a lot of people realize about Ohio State is if they have one single weakness this year, it is actually in the secondary. It is in pass defense. By the way, I know I claim I don't do a lot of X's and O's on this show, but I mean, come on. It's a national championship game. We got to break some stuff down, right? And so when I look at Ohio State and I look at them coming into this game, the one place they can clearly be exposed is in the secondary. That's not just my opinion, that is based on facts, and I think this fact will surprise you. Ohio State had the worst pass defense in the Big Ten this year. Worse than Illinois, worse than Purdue, worse than Michigan, worse than Michigan State, Rutgers, Maryland, whoever. 
Ohio State had the worst pass defense in the Big Ten. Now, part of it, I get it. They only played six games in the regular season. You have one or two bad games with a smaller sample size. The numbers get inflated. They were really bad against Indiana. Maybe not as bad in other places. But the fact remains, this is a weak spot with this defense. But with that said, there is an important caveat that comes with it. They weren't exposed against Trevor Lawrence because the D-line was really good. And so that's why I bring up the D-line in this game is because you have to get pressure on Mac Jones. You have to make him uncomfortable. You have to make him make tough throws on the run because if you let him sit there in the pocket all game long and uh, pitch and catch and throw to Devontae Smith, uh, Miller Forstall, the tight end, Najee Harris out of the backfield, he's going to pick you apart and he is going to do what Bama has done to everybody all season, which is move the ball and put points up on the board. So for Ohio State, that is absolutely key. And by the way, that is absolutely why they beat Clemson. Yes, part of it was that Justin Fields was unbelievable, played the game of his life, was deserving of all the praise that he got. But part of it too was that Ohio State made Trevor Lawrence really uncomfortable in the pocket. And if you didn't watch the game and you just look at the stats, Trevor Lawrence finished with 400 yards passing, and you sit there and think, yeah, well, whatever, but, uh, but, but he played well. Trevor Lawrence did play well, but he was under constant pressure all game. And if you watch by the end, I mean, Ohio State was just abusing, abusing, abusing Clemson's defensive front. Five tackles for loss, two sacks, and Trevor Lawrence was just constantly on the go where there was a couple plays late where I'm like, Dude, you're going to have to take Trevor Lawrence out of this game or you're going to get him killed back there. So one is Ohio State's defensive line healthy, which my understanding is that it is healthy from the perspective that they'll be ready to go with COVID. But two, you got to get pressure on Mac Jones because we know how Alabama has beaten everybody this year, and it's by throwing the ball all over the field, pitch and catch, and that is how Alabama is going to beat you because their defense is good but not elite uh, in a season like this. Kind of looking at it from the other perspective from Alabama and also why I still why I think Ohio State's got a real shot to win this game. One thing stood out to me that I don't think anybody has talked about, and I don't really understand why I'm the only one talking about this. I mean, that tends to happen sometimes. Sometimes I tell you things before they happen. It's why you listen to this show. But when I go back to Alabama season, look, the credit where it's due, right? And you know, you guys know me. I'm not Mr. Anti-SEC. Oh, the SEC's overrated. No, I think SEC football's awesome. But Alabama put together one of the single most dominant regular seasons that I've ever seen. Every single game in the regular season was decided by 17 points or more. 10-game SEC-only schedule. They won every game by at least 17 points, including Texas A&M, which won the Orange Bowl, uh, Georgia, which won the Peach Bowl, and everybody else that they played, they completely dominated. Auburn finished 6-4. They also dominated... That uh, that SEC title or the um, excuse me the semifinal against against uh, Notre Dame. I know I know I know Notre Dame's not great, but and I know that Notre Dame in technicality covered. But we all watched the game and we all saw that Alabama completely controlled that game from start to finish. They get up fourteen nothing and it was never competitive after that. But the one game that I don't really feel like people are talking about. Does anybody besides me remember the SEC championship game? Does anybody besides me remember the fact that Alabama, against the best passing offense, against really the only elite passing offense that they faced all year, Florida was able to move the ball up and down the field on on Alabama, and they essentially did it without a running game. 
if you go back and look at that game, I mean, Kyle Trask kind of had his way with their defense, which is not even a criticism of Alabama because Kyle Trask had, had his way with everybody's defense. But he finished that game with over 400 yards passing. Florida didn't even attempt to run the ball. 56 yards rushing the entire game. But Kyle Trask was able to throw the ball all over the field. And so as I look at this national championship game against Ohio State, that's kind of what's etched in my brain. Alabama all year long has essentially faced like one NFL-ish caliber quarterback because with due respect to Texas A&M, Kellen Mond is not an NFL quarterback. With due respect to Georgia, uh, uh, JT Daniels was not playing at that point. It was Stetson Bennett. Stetson Bennett is not even maybe an SEC quarterback. And I like the kid. I wish the kid well, but he is not an NFL caliber quarterback. The one time Alabama faced an NFL quarterback all year, by the way, Ian Book from Notre Dame, not an NFL quarterback. The one time Alabama faced an NFL caliber quarterback all year was in the SEC championship game. And the dude torched him. And the one time that he fa they faced the elite receivers that they'll see on Monday against Ohio State, they got torched by Kyle Pitts, who had uh, over 180 yards receiving, which is insane to think about. Excuse me, 150, 130, excuse me. Kendarius Toney, 153. But when I look at Alabama, I'm saying, man, they've really only faced one offense all season long that has any kind of firepower similar to Ohio State, and that was the closest game they played. Now, they won 52-46, to but man, was it close, and man, was Florida able to go up and down the field, up and down the field, up and down the field, and I know Alabama, I don't know that there was ever a thought that they were actually going to lose that game, but they could never put them away, and so when I look at Monday's game, now Alabama is playing the best quarterback that they faced all year with uh, probably not quite as good wide receivers as Florida, but pretty darn close, a running game to match, and a better defense than Florida. And so if Alabama could only beat Florida by six, if Alabama could only beat Florida by six, then I think with this Ohio State defense with a slightly better quarterback in Justin Fields, I think Ohio State can win this game. Now, I will be monitoring this game all day Monday to make sure that we don't get any updates on any weird COVID, but assuming that we don't get any weird COVID, here is my national championship pick. Ohio State 41, Alabama 38. I am picking Ohio State to win the national championship. And it's because for all of the reasons I said, you're not going to slow down Mac Jones, but I believe they can get pressure on him. Justin Fields is phenomenal. And if you can protect him and find balance in the offense, you can't just send everybody after Justin Fields, you're going to be okay. But in the bigger picture, here is why I like Ohio State. This just feels like a team and a program that has been doubted all season long. And like I said, it really does go back to middle of July, end of July, early August, when the Big Ten canceled the football season. The reason that Ohio State fought so hard for this season was to get to this moment. This moment is huge for them. It's bigger for them than maybe anybody because of how hard they fought. Now, that's no disrespect to Alabama, which has been on a revenge tour of their own over the last year to get back to this point. But when I look at Ohio State, they went from not thinking they would not have a season to fighting for this season and then all the adversity that they went through. All the games that were canceled, all the COVID positives, the fact that Ryan Day wasn't able to, to participate in what they did. He wasn't even able to travel for one of their games. The fact that Justin Fields, as I said, basically played behind a backup offensive line for one game against Michigan State. 
the fact that everybody on the team has seemingly had to miss time in out of the lineup. And I think it's made them stronger. And I think against Clemson was the first time that we saw the Ohio State team that we that we thought we were going to see in July and August before the season was canceled. And so at the end of the day, I've never bought this narrative that Ohio State is like significantly worse than Clemson. And I don't believe now that they're significantly worse than Alabama. And I think when you factor it in, I think they actually match up really well with Alabama as well as anybody in college football, except maybe Clemson. And I think it's going to be a heck of a game, and I think Ohio State can win. Finally, as I, I, I wrap this kind of segment, and as I get to basketball in a minute, I just want to say one last thing heading into this national championship game. Let's enjoy the heck out of it. Because when I sit back and I think, and, and like I, I just want to get this message out. I've said it on every radio program and platform and Twitter and this and that. But when I think about where we were five, six months ago, I think it's absolutely incredible how far we've come. And sometimes it doesn't feel like we've come that far. But I mean, you think about the fact that the season was almost canceled, that we were told that it could not be played, that the SEC, Big 12, and ACC pushed on, and eventually the Big 10, the Pac-12, and a couple Mountain West and here and there, or the Mountain West and MAC came back. It is incredible. We've come full circle, and really quickly as I wrap up on the last real college football segment that I'll do all season, I just want to give credit to everyone. I want to give credit to the players. I want to give credit to the doctors of these teams and programs. I want to give credit to the parents, many of whom essentially haven't seen their kids throughout this season, right? I mean, they're, you know, when parents go to games, they can't go hug their son after this game. And by the way, just to be clear, Men's and women's soccer players are dealing with this, baseball, softball, men's and women's basketball, so it's not only football players. I don't want to say that only football players have had to go through some nonsense, but I do think it is important to note how far that we have come. So enjoy the heck out of this game, but when I look at it, I do think that Ohio State is the team that I like, and I like them because, like I said, they are the best team that Alabama has faced all year, they are the most balanced team, and I do think it just feels fitting that they take down Clemson, avenge last year's loss, then get to this game and win it to overcome everything that they have all year. Whew. Okay, that's it. That's the big hot take Ohio State Alabama segment. I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you guys enjoy the game tonight, and I hope you guys enjoy not only what's coming up, but tomorrow's episode where we recap it all. But that is all I have on college football, by the way. Uh, Harbaugh re-signed his contract this week. I'm not going to, I've spent so much time talking Harbaugh, I'm kind of over it, but he'll be back. There's a couple other college football news and notes, but it just feels like today is about Alabama, Ohio State. And so Alabama, Ohio State is what we talked about. And now let's get to some basketball. I will be back momentarily to talk some hoops. Cannot wait for tonight. Cannot wait to see what this game delivers. Cannot wait to see if I am just totally wrong, get embarrassed, and am, have to come back to you guys with hat in hand on Tuesday morning. But I do think it's going to be a fun game. Cannot wait. Now, let's get to some college basketball where we talk Kentucky, just an unbelievable weekend. We talk Alabama, which I think actually might be the, the best team in the SEC. Maybe Alabama's turning into a basketball school. I don't know. And we'll get to, to get to, we'll get to some other topics from the weekend. First, let's take a really quick break, though. All right, everybody, uh, I am back. And by the way, remember when I led this show by saying that uh, I was leading, I was recording, excuse me, during Saints Bears? Uh, yeah, kind of something crazy happened as I paused after the football segment, got together some basketball notes, and big news out of college basketball as as I was paused, 
Oscar Shibwe, uh, a former McDonald's All-American. He was in the transfer portal originally at West Virginia. He actually ended up committing to Kentucky and will play there in the 2021-2022 season. So shout out to Oscar Shibwe for uh, committing when he did so that I could get, get it in on this show without having to do the whole show over. So here is how I'm going to do this college basketball segment. We will lead with this Kentucky story from Saturday afternoon. Kentucky goes to Gainesville and beats the crap out of Florida um, and look I know some of you aren't Kentucky fans you get mad Torres you talk about Kentucky so much sorry this is the Lakers this is the New York Yankees this is the Dodgers this is whoever this is a, a an ever-evolving topic and as stuff happens I gotta talk about them Kentucky was awful then they had guys leaving the program we were wondering if they were ever gonna get right now they're on a three-game lose a winning streak excuse me that that included a dominant win at Florida and so of course I gotta talk about them so we're gonna get into Kentucky momentarily we are going to get into Oscar Shibwe committing for 2021-2022. What does it mean? What happens going forward? All that good stuff. And then we will close with a couple other news and notes. I do specifically actually want to talk about Kentucky's Tuesday opponent, Alabama, who I think has been absolutely an incredible surprise in college basketball this year, or at the very least since SEC play started. I don't want to say they're an incredible surprise uh, this season because I had them in my preseason top 25, but they were struggling early and have really put it together. And then we'll wrap with a couple other news and notes. You know, Creighton looked awesome. UConn looked awesome. So we'll, we'll, we'll wrap with a couple other things. But let's start with Kentucky. Let's start on the court. Again, we'll get to Oscar Shibwe momentarily. But let's start with what happened in Gainesville. Because like I said, I don't always plan on talking about Kentucky when I come on this show. But it has been one of the most surreal, uh, unbelievable seasons that I can ever remember. Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we were wondering if the kingdom was collapsing, if John Calipari had lost his touch. I, I, I was never the guy that called for him to like be fired or anything, but I did wonder, like, has the game kind of passed this guy by? And even as recently as a week ago at Mississippi State, you're kind of sitting there saying, I don't think this thing is going to get right in 2021. Uh, maybe we just need to start looking ahead to the 2022 season. Instead, they rally at Mississippi State. They beat Vandy, and then they go to Florida on Saturday afternoon. And Florida, for what it's worth, has been a pretty good team this season. They beat LSU last Saturday. They played Alabama tough for about 30, 35 minutes on, uh, on, on Tuesday before they ended up losing. And this was the game that you kind of circled on the calendar if you're a Kentucky fan or a college basketball fan trying to figure out if Kentucky's any good or not. And he said, okay, if they go to Gainesville, if they get this win, whoa, buddy, this season is completely different. Well, not only do they go to Gainesville, not only do they get the win, they put together a dominant 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 effort they were up by as much as like 17 with about 15 minutes left in the second half uh blew the lead a little bit ended up finishing the game with a 15 point margin of victory and so the Kentucky Wildcats all of a sudden completely out of nowhere like where did this come from uh they've won three and oh but most importantly was this game on Saturday right because I think you can look at the Mississippi State game and say, hey, this kid Dante Allen, he blew up, but is it sustainable? Then you beat Vandy, and it's kind of ugly, and you win, but it's by one possession. You say, well, those might be two of the worst teams in the SEC. When you go to Florida, when you go play a team that, again, beat LSU in the O-Dome last Saturday, you say, if we get this one, 
we're starting to feel good about ourselves. And not only does Kentucky get the win, but they absolutely dominate. And it is kind of, again, one of the most surreal things that I have seen in all my years covering college basketball and even watching college basketball, okay? I am in my mid-30s. I've been watching college basketball longer than I care to admit, probably uh, encroaching on 25-plus years at this point. I don't ever remember a single team having a single bigger turnaround in a single shorter amount of time than I remember Kentucky this season doing what they did. Literally as of a week ago, 10 days ago by the time you listen, halftime at the Mississippi State game, you're wondering, is this team ever going to figure it out? Now they've won three in a row and are coming off a dominant win against Florida. So obviously the question now becomes, well, what happened? First of all, I think there's two really obvious things that happened. The first one is the emergence of Dante Allen. And I've talked about Dante Allen the last two or three episodes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but this was for the non-Kentucky fan, the Kentucky High School Player of the Year, averaged 40 points a game as a senior, and John Calipari just wouldn't play him. Finally, he gets a shot at Mississippi State. He goes for 23 points. He basically single-handedly leads them to a win, and it forces John Calipari to put him into the lineup. And since that Mississippi State game, he hasn't been quite as good, but there is a very simple reason for it. He is now the focal point of everybody else's scouting report. It was crazy because I was watching the Vandy game on Tuesday night or Wednesday night or whenever Kentucky played him, and Vandy is chasing this guy 25 feet away from the basket, and again, he is basically the focal point, which makes life easier for everybody else. So simply by him having the game that he did against Mississippi State, it makes it easier for everybody else. There are now driving lanes for the guards. There are less... um, There are less players around the basket. The defense isn't as packed in. And so when the defense isn't as packed in, it allows for second chance, third chance opportunities on on the boards. Uh, And also, by the way, when you have more driving lanes for the guards, defenses have to collapse on them. You got to kick it out. And it is creating wide open three-point opportunities for everybody else. Kentucky went four for 11 from three uh, besides Dante Allen on Saturday afternoon. Devin Askew, I believe, had one, B.J. Boston had one, and uh, Davian Mintz had two, but it's important because those were guys that outside of Davian Mintz, they were not hitting early in the season, and then all of a sudden, this floor opens up, Dante Allen hits a couple, and it gives them confidence, like, you know what? I can do it too. So that is the first reason why, why Kentucky has turned a corner. Dante Allen has been phenomenal. The second thing, and not only has he been phenomenal, but it helps all the other guys on the team and on the court. Secondly, and this is important, Kentucky returned Keon Brooks on Saturday. And I think most of you listening kind of have an idea of who Keon Brooks is. But for those who don't, Keon Brooks is basically the only player on Kentucky's roster who played at Kentucky last season. Kentucky, we always know they turn over the roster quite a bit. He was the only player that played at Kentucky last season who came back this year. But the problem was... He was banged up and hurt all preseason. And so this was kind of the one thing that Kentucky fans were even in the midst of the losing streak were kind of holding on hope to was the idea that if we can just get Keon Brooks back, we should be okay. We should be fine. We should be okay. Let's let, let let's you know, let's say a small prayer because this guy is a difference maker. And I'll be honest, 
I don't think I ever said it on this podcast, but I don't know that I necessarily believed that Keon Brooks would make that much of a difference when he comes back. Well, your boy Torres was wrong. I mean, I was way wrong because Keon Brooks, his return, I believe even more than the Dante, well, I don't know about more than the Dante Allen thing, but, but equally with the Dante Allen thing, completely changes this team. First of all, he's a really, really good player. I looked at him on Saturday, the way that he plays, the way that he plays on the ball, off the ball, the way that he runs the court, the way that he attacks the glass. This guy's an NBA player. And I don't remember thinking that he is an NBA player uh, uh, following last season. In a lot of ways, and I'm not the only one to make this comparison, he reminds me of P.J. Washington, who came back for his second season at Kentucky and ended up being a lottery pick two seasons ago. That's who he reminds me of. He can play inside, he can play outside, he can shoot, he's very aggressive around the boards, and he's a really good player. I think, two, he is that calming influence that Kentucky needs. And this is something I talked about after the North Carolina game when Kentucky lost. Because if you remember, that was the game that North Carolina beats Kentucky and Kentucky sends Keon Brooks to the postgame podium to talk about the game. Why was that weird? Because he didn't play and all of his other teammates didn't want to go. And so it became this pseudo big topic with Kentucky fans. Why is this guy going? But even at that time, I defended the move because I said, that is a leader. That is what a guy who is a leader in a locker room does. He says, my guys are down. My guys are hurt right now. My guys are angry. Let me go take care of these guys. Let me go protect them. And let me go take some of the burden off their shoulders. So now that that guy is not only in the locker room, not only on the sidelines waving a towel, but that he's on the court saying, guys, come here, rally, calm down, we're okay, we're going to be fine. That is a huge X factor that you can't even possibly replicate because there was nobody on this roster, again, to take that role because there was nobody that had been with the program last year. Now, I give credit because I think Davion Mintz, again, the, the graduate transfer from Creighton, I think he tried to take that role, but I don't know that he necessarily took it um, in a way that Keon Brooks could once he returned to the court. Finally, I would say that Keon Brooks' value is not just because he's really good, not just because he's an emotional leader, but if you watch the game, it allows everybody else, almost like Dante Allen, it makes everybody else's life easier, right? With Keon Brooks on this team, it completely changes everybody else's role. Now, all of a sudden, those role players, the guys that, that were having to carry this heavy burden of being something that they weren't, they can just go back to being role players. Lance Ware can just go back to just banging the boards for 8, 10, 12 minutes, come out, grab a drink of water, uh, and cheer his team on. Jacob Toppin does not have to be a scorer now. Same kind of deal. He can play that role. Even Isaiah Jackson, the top 30 recruit who many believe could be a first-round NBA draft pick, he's still all kind of uh, uh, tools at this point. He's got incredible tools, but he is still very much a toolsy player at this point. And so when I look at what Keon Brooks does, it allows all those guys, it takes the pressure off them. None of them have to be a 10-8 and 8 guy, a 12-8 and 8 guy, a 14-6 and 6 guy. That's Keon Brooks' job, and he's going to do it really well. Now down the road, could, could those guys want a bigger piece of the pie? Maybe, but I think now they're all doing what they thought they would do this year. They're all being the complementary pieces that they expected to be this year without the burden of being a superstar. So when you factor in the Dante Allen stuff and you factor in the Keon Brooks stuff, I'm just telling you, man, 
This is absolutely um, just a, a, a crazy season-altering moment in time with that win at Florida. And <laughs> I've talked about this team quite a bit, and I don't always plan on it, um, but I do think that as I look ahead to the rest of the season, I do think this could be, like I just said, a season-altering type of game and a season-altering type of moment. I don't want to over-exaggerate. I don't want to overdo it off of one game. But coming into this game, I'll be honest, I'll just keep it real. I'm just going to keep it 100% real. I didn't think Kentucky was going to win this game because when I looked at Florida, what I said was this, is that I, and really more so what I looked at Kentucky. I said, look, these two wins by Kentucky are nice, beat Mississippi State, beat Vandy. But those are two of the worst teams in the SEC, and the Mississippi State game was fluky even as it was. And I said, look, I think Kentucky can get back to respectability. I think they can be a fringe tournament team, maybe get to whatever, um, you know, 17-10 and 10 by the end of the season, which would be 14-4 and four, uh, in SEC play, and then maybe a win or two if there is an SEC tournament. I, I, I think they can get there, but what I was also trying to be realistic about was that there were still a bunch of teams ahead of them. Tennessee is really good. Alabama, which we're going to get to in a minute, is really good. Arkansas, when they get Justin Smith back, their best rebounder, they're going to be really good. They got confident on Saturday. They beat Georgia by 30. They're good. Uh, LSU has dudes. Even Florida, like I've criticized Mike White. I thought they did a pretty good job considering their best player, Keontae Johnson, was out. And so I said, like, Florida's just the kind of team Older guys, veteran guys, confident guys, a couple guys that are NBA caliber players, they're going to give Kentucky problems. So to see Kentucky go in there and beat the brakes off of them, it made me realize if Kentucky can play like that, they can play with and beat anybody in the SEC going forward. Now, I would still say Alabama this week is going to be huge because I think Alabama's really good. Tennessee still probably with more veterans has a higher upside so that is not a knock on either of those teams. But it's a reality that this whole thing has changed. This whole narrative has changed. And the one thing I'll say really quick, and I do want to get to Oscar Shibway and some other stuff, I do think it's worth noting that, that there, like, two things can be true, right? Like, yes, people listening probably are like, dude, Torres, you were crushing this team two weeks ago. Now you're trying to be all nice. And what I always say, I do the show today. I have to react to what I know now. And I couldn't see this coming, right? Nobody did. But what I also think can be true to a degree is that I probably, when I look at the bigger picture, I probably should have factored in some other things that I maybe didn't factor in as much as I should have. And what I mean by that is that when I look at this Kentucky team, I do think that I did not factor in enough what this offseason did to this specific program, right? And it's funny because... You know, I'm fortunate enough, in addition to this podcast, radio show, whatever, I do a bunch of radio hits over the course of the week and talk to all different hosts all across the country. And I was on Cole Kublik's uh, SEC show the other day, and we were talking. He's like, dude, why, wh why did it take Kentucky to get a while to get going? And I really thought about it, and it really hit me that Kentucky, probably more than any other program, was hurt more than anyone else by this weird, bizarre offseason. Now, to be clear, that's not an excuse. You shouldn't have been one in six. If you had played Dante Allen, you probably would have had at least another win or two. But I do think that that was a factor in why this team started so slow. Never forget, as I just mentioned a minute ago, they only had one player returning who played any type of minutes a season ago. That was Keon Brooks. He did not play until Saturday. He did not play until January 9th, 2021, in a season that started before Thanksgiving. 
But two, when you have that many new players, that many true freshmen, to not have a normal offseason where you're in the gym the whole time, where you're working out with your teammates, where you can hang out with your teammates outside of the building, that is huge. That is a complete game-changing, X-factor, difference-making deal um, that I think has to be taken into account when we look at why Kentucky struggled so much. And so I do think that as I look back and how critical I was, and the tweets are still there, I haven't deleted them, the podcasts are still on this feed, I haven't deleted them, I went after Calipari two or three times, and I think it was justified in that moment. But what I don't think is that I took enough time to really consider um, just how tough this offseason would be for a program like Kentucky um, that just frankly just had no continuity, had a bunch of freshmen, didn't have veterans. This isn't Tennessee. This isn't Gonzaga. This isn't the types of teams that started off well. It's not Iowa, Michigan, Rutgers, whatever. So yeah, that's my big Kentucky spiel for the day, uh, and it'll be fascinating because we'll find out just how good they are uh, again when they play Alabama on Saturday. They beat Alabama. They're alone in first place in the SEC. Really quickly, I do want to, before I get to Alabama and the rest of the weekend that was, do want to talk about the breaking news that happened on Sunday right as I was about to hit record on this basketball segment, and that was that Oscar Shibway has committed to Kentucky uh, as a transfer who, of course, started his career at uh, West Virginia. He decided about two weeks ago to leave, and when he left, I said point blank, end of story, this kid is probably the best big man transfer that will enter the portal uh, all of this year. Whoever gets him is going to be incredibly lucky, but it was kind of a weird, bizarre recruitment. I didn't really tweet much about it because there was all sorts of mixed reports since he decided to leave West Virginia. First was that he was in Miami working out, that he was going to go pursue pro options. He's from overseas. Maybe he'll consider an overseas contract. Then you hear reports that it's basically a done deal to or to Miami, excuse me. He's been working out in Miami. He knows the people in Miami, whatever. But clearly over the last couple days, word kind of started trickling out that, you know, Kentucky might have a real chance at this thing. He did some Zoom meetings the other day, and he ultimately did commit to Kentucky on Sunday. And let me tell you, this is a difference-making deal for 2021-2022. First of all, he's a really good player. Uh, he was a McDonald's All-American coming out of high school in 2019. Actually chose West Virginia over Kentucky. I've heard some mix, mixed things that maybe he wanted to be at Kentucky a little bit more, but the adults in his life wanted him to go to West Virginia. They were more comfortable with the staff, whatever. Not accusing anyone of anything, not saying any, anything was done wrong, but I do believe that he probably originally did probably lean towards Kentucky. But again, there's, there's all sorts of factors that go into what kid makes what decision. And it's not as though he made a bad decision by going to West Virginia and playing for a future Hall of Famer in Bob Huggins. When you look at beyond just that, um, you add in the fact that he was really, really good last year. As a true freshman, he actually led the team in scoring and rebounding. Um, as a true freshman a season ago, he averaged uh, 11.5 points, 9.5 rebounds. He was a big reason why I picked West Virginia to go to the Final Four in the preseason because he and Derek Culver are both monsters down low. And I was like, dude, these two guys are so physical and so tough and so nasty. Um, I don't know how anyone can handle them in an NCAA tournament setting. Now, clearly it didn't work out, and I don't want to sugarcoat it. Things clearly did not go well because his, his stats dropped. And if you watched West Virginia, it was weird. You could just tell there was something not right with this team. 
And to be honest, I have no super inside information. I don't know if he was unhappy. I don't know if it was a mental health deal. I don't know if he butted heads with Bob Huggins. I don't know if he just didn't improve from one year to the next. So I'm not here to say that West Virginia is 100% to blame for him leaving or he totally made the wrong decision for leaving. That, that, that's not what I'm here about. That's not what I'm here to say. What I'm here to say, by the way, is what I've been pretty consistent about all season long when it comes to transfers, when it comes to opt-outs. This is a weird year. It's bizarre. You're isolated. I just said it with the college football stuff a minute ago. You're away from your family. You can't see your parents. Uh, You're stuck in a hotel room. You're stuck in a dorm room. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. This is mentally draining and mentally exhausting for everybody. And so if a kid decides in football that he wants to opt out with a game or two left, uh, and football decides he wants to transfer, and basketball decides he wants to transfer, I am not going to be critical. I just think it's one of those deals where it is such a bizarre year that I can't blame anybody for being uncertain of what their future is, whether it is in the football level, the basketball level, a non-revenue sport, whatever. Now, in terms of what he's getting, in terms of what Kentucky's getting, in terms of the reason that there should be excitement, they're getting a really good player. First of all, like I mentioned, he averaged 11 and 9 in his first season in college basketball as a freshman last year. For people who do not aren't as familiar with his game, he is a big, physical, power, powerful, low post player. Um, and I do think part of the reason he he left West Virginia, I talked to a couple people at West Virginia. I don't think that he believed that he was getting developed the way that he needed to be. West Virginia, we've all watched him play. They're big, they're physical, they're mean, they're nasty. The one thing you don't really normally say about West Virginia is that they're super skilled, right? They're not Villanova, they're not Virginia, uh, they're not Iowa that's just draining threes from 40 feet. They are a team that frankly just wants to beat you up and overpower you. And so I do think that as a Kentucky fan, there's reason for excitement. He does bring a unique skill set, which we'll get into in a minute, But I do think there is some skill development things that he needs to work on and that he wants to work on and which is why he decided to leave West Virginia in the first place. But what you are getting is frankly just just exactly what Kentucky needs. First of all, you're getting a veteran. And I think this is so important, guys, because I understand there's no way to know what transfers are going to work, which transfers aren't, all that stuff, right? I was the guy that said Olivier Saar was going to be awesome from day one. He's getting there. He ain't there yet. I was also the guy on the flip side, uh, Carleek Jones, who's Louisville's best player. I said, I don't know if that guy can cut it in the ACC. Well, that kid's been awesome. So I'm not here to like make any definitive statements. But one, he gives you a piece that's going to be my understanding, and I'm just kind of doing this off the top of my head. The commitment literally happened two minutes before I started recording. Um, he brings a, a, you know, he brings, a, he'll be a veteran presence. He's used to college basketball, the physicality, the demands, that is not going to overwhelm him. But on top of that, um, he's just going to bring a, a veteran presence to the floor. Uh, you know, we just talked about Keon Brooks a minute ago, the importance that he has. Well, this is a guy that's going to be in this program this season. And no matter what happens, no matter who decides to, to, to go pro, no matter who decides to transfer, this guy is going to be there uh, to kind of bridge the gap between, last, between this year and next year. I also think if you're a Kentucky fan, the reason to be excited is because there's some guys on this team right now that are playing well that you'd have to think are going to be back next year, right? Like Jacob Toppin's awesome. But he was going to redshirt this year. He ain't going nowhere. Devin Askew, I know it's always a sketchy thing with West Coast kids. They haven't, Kentucky hasn't had a good track record of keeping them. I think Devin Askew's back next year. I think he's developing and I think he's growing within that Kentucky program. Lance Ware. Um, 
I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that maybe Isaiah Jackson is back next year, depending. And then, oh, by the way, you got a three-man recruiting class coming in already with Nolan Hickman, uh, Damian Collins, and Bryce Hopkins. So to me, I just think this is a game changer, and I think it's great for Kentucky, and I think more than anything is that Kentucky, and I was super critical of this two weeks ago to go back full circle about how critical I was. They are a program that needs to start developing veterans within the program, and they can't hope that every single year their freshmen pop and are All-American type players because clearly that is not the case. But this is huge for Kentucky. This is a big win for this program, and I just think it's a great thing for them going into 2021-2022 because along with Devin Askew and some of the other guys, they really do have a building block for next season. All right, really quickly I want to wrap on uh, a couple – kind of different topics outside of, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about. The first one is the team that Kentucky is going to play on Tuesday, Alabama. And I've talked about a lot of different teams throughout the last couple weeks. I talked about Michigan on Wednesday's episode, Thursday's episode, excuse me. I've talked about UConn. I've talked about Tennessee. I've talked about Arkansas, a ton on Kentucky, a ton on Gonzaga. I want to give some love to Alabama. Because like I said, they were my preseason, they were a preseason top 25 team to me. I think I picked them to finish fourth in the SEC preseason. But I'm telling you right now, I don't know exactly what to make of Kentucky, but I think you can probably legitimately make an argument that right now Alabama is playing better than anybody in the SEC. And look, it starts with Nate Oates, right? And, and I'm not going to claim that I know Nate Oates well, but he's been on this podcast. And I think even if you just listen to him on this podcast, you know, Guy's a very bright guy. Uh, and the thing that I've always said about Nate Oates, I give him a ton of credit. First of all, you got to be bright because he was a high school coach 10 years ago. So to go from high school to a D1 assistant to a D1 head coach to the Power Five in the SEC, you know you're doing something right. But when I look at Nate Oates, what I see is a very bright guy who also brought a brand to Alabama. And that's the one thing, right, with college basketball. And I think that's where a lot of young coaches make mistakes. Who do I want to be? Who do I want to play? What do we have to do to have success? And from the beginning, this guy has known exactly how he wants to build Alabama, what he wants the roster to look like, how he wants it to be. And that way is very simply this. We're going to play fast. We're going to shoot a lot of threes. We're going to score a lot. We're going to be fun, which is going to help in recruiting. Last year, you can't deny that, that those two things happened, that they scored a lot and that it helped in recruiting because last year they actually finished third nationally in scoring behind only Gonzaga and Duke. And they also, on top of that, were really good in recruiting. And more than anything, first of all, I don't think uh, Nate Oates probably gets enough credit for how well he's recruited. We talk about Calipari, Rick Barnes. We talk about uh, Eric Musselman, the way that he's able to flip over a roster. Nate Oates has basically completely flipped over Alabama's roster from last year. From when he got there in the spring of, I guess it was 2019, to now in 2021, he has three players left who played for the previous coaching staff with Avery Johnson. John Petty, Alex Reese, and Herb Jones. And that's it. Everybody else gone. And so he has flipped over this roster, but more than anything, he's flipped over this roster with players who fit what he wants to do. They play fast, they shoot threes, the big men can run the floor, which we're going to get into in a minute because they had a big man who was awesome on Saturday afternoon. Um, but he's, he's got the brand, and now he's getting the players. And the third piece, and this is the most important piece, they're finally starting to play some defense, right? Because last year they were exciting, they were fun, they were energetic, you liked watching them. Problem was, they never play defense. And so when you watched them, 
Sometimes they would beat an opponent 95-92. Sometimes they'd lose 95-92. Sometimes they'd win 95-70. When the threes weren't falling, they'd, they'd lose 95-70. And so it was just a wild roller coaster. I mean, I forget the exact tweet, but I'm pretty sure I said something like, Alabama basketball is like a trip to Vegas. You know, you, you, you know how it's going to start. No, no, no. What was it? It was, you know how it's going to start and you know how it's going to end, but you know you're going to have... No, no, no. This is what it was. <laughs> Worst radio ever, by the way. Um, you don't know how it's going to start. You don't know how it's going to end. But, um, but, 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 you're going to have fun along the way. That was Alabama last year. You don't know how it's going to start. You don't know how it's going to end. But, man, is it going to be fun along the way. And like I said, sometimes fun meant a 95-92 win for Alabama. Sometimes it meant a 95-92 loss for Alabama. But you never knew exactly what you were going to get. Well, fast forward this year, and they're playing some real defense. You look at what they did in the first three SEC games. They held... Um, Excuse me, they held Ole Miss to 64 points. Tennessee, who I still think, again, might have the most upside of anybody in the SEC, to 63. Florida scored 71, but a lot of it was late when the game was out of hand. Then you did have Saturday, where they went on the road to Auburn. Auburn played about as well as they could, but uh, Alabama still had the ability to outscore them, winning 94-90. But again, what I like about this team, they are playing real defense up until Saturday. And what I give Nate Oates credit for is something I've talked about on this show before. This guy... There was something going on in that program because they went 6-3 and three in the out of conference, were struggling, and next thing you know, um, he decides before the first SEC game, but really going into the last out-of-conference game, that he was going to suspend two starters from, the, you know, two guys that were playing a lot, John Petty and James Rojas. Don't know what happened, not going to claim to know what happened, all that good stuff. And so as time went on, you kind of wondered, okay, what's going on? Well, I don't know, but whatever it was, it clearly worked. Because uh, after that, th- this team has been completely different. They're now 4-0, they're playing real defense, and I think they're a competitor in the SEC. This Kentucky thing has caught me completely off guard, but prior to the Kentucky-Florida game, I thought Alabama was the best team in the SEC. And you, people could say, well, Kentucky, well, Tennessee. Well, Alabama just won at Tennessee. And they won, and what I like, again, is that they are now... They have the players, they understand the system, but what I like about this particular Alabama team at this particular point is they have players that suit the system, and because of it, they have a lot of options, a lot of versatility, a lot of depth. The crazy thing about their last couple wins, they've actually come without their starting point guard, Javon Quinterly, who was a McDonald's All-American. Petty has had up and down games, but Herb Jones has been awesome. On Saturday, it was a grad transfer named Jordan Bruner, six foot ten, who started his career at Yale, who had 20 points. Josh Primo, a five-star guard, had 20-plus points. And so that's the scary thing about Bama. When they score 95 points, it's because they can get scoring from just about anywhere on the floor. But this is a team to watch. Again, I think Tennessee is going to be really good in the big picture. I think Arkansas will be good once their their best player, just not their best, but one of their key players, Justin Smith, comes back. Kentucky's really, really interesting. But right now, today, the best team in the SEC might be Alabama. And like I said, I want to give a little bit of credit to them. Okay, well, this uh, segment went really long. Thought I was going to do seven, eight minutes on Kentucky, seven, eight minutes on Alabama. Next thing you know, Oscar Sheboy happens. So just want to run down a couple quick things from this weekend in college hoops, and we'll get out of here. Uh, one, in that Alabama game, worth noting, Auburn's five-star commitment at point guard, Sharif Cooper, finally got eligible, and mercy was this kid good. He finished with 22 points, eight assists. Now, he did have a couple turnovers late to get a little sloppy, but he was unbelievable. By the way, I think I said 22 points. It was actually 26 points, nine assists, um, and he changes to Auburn. 
he is, he now makes them a very tough out. They're going to play fast. They're going to score a lot. They're going to be interesting. So shout out to Auburn, who I think is going to be very interesting going forward. Um, UConn, want to give my Huskies a shout out. If you're a UConn fan and you missed Tuesday's episode, did a big segment on UConn after they beat, beat Marquette. But UConn now 6-1, and one, their only loss against Creighton in a game that they largely dominated. Probably a team that should be in the top 25, but they won on Saturday at Butler without James Booknight. They're All-American. This team's coming along really nicely. I mean, you talk about a team that's outside the top 25 right now that I'm just warning you, they're coming now. And Dan Hurley said that after the Villanova game. They're coming. I don't know that they're Creighton or Villanova yet, but they're not that far off. They, I think, very clearly, in my opinion, are the third best team in the Big East right now. Speaking of the Big East, Creighton's rolling, and Creighton doesn't get nearly enough credit. I get that Villanova's kind of the name brand in that conference, and I get that UConn's kind of a new sexy story and all that stuff. But Creighton, in the last week, they beat St. John's on Saturday, 97-79, on Wednesday, they beat Seton Hall 89-53. to This team is rolling, and this is a team. You get outside that top four, five, six. Talked about Gonzaga, talked about Baylor. Creighton's a team that nobody's going to want to play just as good. Uh, and finally, really quick, quick shout-out to, well, a couple quick things. Tennessee, nice win against a and uh, never really challenged. I just was impressed. It was just businesslike. I think they can get a lot better, which is the scary part. I don't think they're playing anywhere close to their best basketball. Arkansas, I told you last episode, if they just cleaned up the little stuff, they would be fine. They were. And finally, 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 I uh, do want to give a quick shout out to Andrew Jones, the Texas uh, guard. Of course, we all know his story. Battled leukemia, was diagnosed with leukemia three years ago on this past Saturday, January 9th. Guess what? Hits the game-winning shot to beat West Virginia on Saturday, three years after that diagnosis has made a full recovery. And Texas, man, I'm telling you, it is a dream season for Texas. Uh, Shaka Smart should have grown his hair out a lot earlier because they might just be uh, like a national championship caliber program by now. But anyway, this has gone on long enough. I want to thank you guys for listening to today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Truly appreciate all of the support that you guys give this show and everything that you do. So if you're not subscribed, make sure to do so. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. At Aaron, un, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Find the YouTube page. Find my Facebook page. Uh, any questions, Aaron Torres Podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast questions at gmail.com. But it's time to get out of here. So, with that said, shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. And I will be back on Tuesday recapping the national championship game.